Welcome to the Alcohol Freedom Podcast, where we are bringing you a modern and judgment-free conversation about how we relate to our drinking habits. I'm Michelle Kapler, and you've got episode 26. Hi, friend. Thanks for being here. I'm going to jump right in today. Today, we're going to get a little granular and a little neuroscience-y we're going to talk about trigger thoughts. And trigger thoughts are the thoughts that always get us to drink. Those old faithful thoughts that lead us to drinking, even if we hadn't previously decided that we were going to drink, or maybe even that we had decided that we're not going to drink. When I was a drinker, my most reliable trigger thought was always, I need to relax. And in a close second place, it was, I had a stressful day. I deserve it. And honorable mentions go to, it's okay to have just one, or I can take a night off tomorrow instead. That was a big one too. Do you have thoughts like this? I think everyone does. Today, I want to talk about the brain science behind trigger thoughts and how it works. Because I find that the more I learn about what's psychologically going on and neurologically going on, the less I make it about me being a defective human with no self-control. It really depersonalizes things. I'm wondering how that sounds to you. I've got to get a little technical for a bit, and I want you to stick with me. I promise not to drone on and on for too long. When I was doing some research for this episode, I read a great article by Ken McKimsey Middleton, who provides a really easy-to-digest brain science lesson for how alcohol works in the body. And he actually makes a pretty strong case for why everyone should quit drinking. That's not what I'm saying here, and that's certainly not the approach that I take. But if you want to check it out, I'll put the link in the show notes so you can grab it easily. We need to get to know some of the neurotransmitters a bit better. And today, we're going to say hello to endorphins and dynorphins, and also we're going to bring back our longtime friend dopamine into the conversation. So endorphins are released when we experience something pleasurable, like a snuggle with our cat, or a hug with our kid, or laughing at a funny movie, or taking that first drink of Chardonnay in the evening. When we get a release of endorphins from something naturally occurring in the world, like a hug or a laugh or a kiss, our body simply regulates itself and comes back to its baseline of homeostasis on its own. But there are things that humans consume that are human-made and are far more concentrated than they otherwise would be in nature. These are things like alcohol and processed sugar and social media and pornography, just really concentrated versions of something that already exists in nature, like sex or sweetness, but just packaged together in this really, really concentrated version. And as we know, these things, these concentrated substances aren't inherently bad. And It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a problematic relationship with any of these just because they are concentrated. And our bodies do have ways of striking a balance in the situation. And that's where dynorphins come in. Dynorphins are neurotransmitters that are responsible for regulating pain and pleasure. At least they play a big role in that in our body. So when a large amount of endorphins are released, we also get dynorphins to bring the body back into balance so it doesn't get too overstimulated. 
Because alcohol is a substance that the body is not naturally equipped to handle in large quantities neurologically, a relatively large amount of dynorphins is released to counteract the huge spike in endorphins when we drink. This is why people need to keep drinking in order to keep feeling that pleasurable buzz because we get that release of endorphins and then we get a release of dynorphins to kind of cancel out the effect. Our bodies are constantly adapting and upping the homeostatic balance, which is why over time we develop a tolerance and need to keep drinking more and more to get the same effect. At least that's one factor that plays into tolerance. There's also a third player in the equation that we've met a few times on the podcast already called dopamine. Dopamine is also a pleasure neurotransmitter, a feel-good signal, if you will. But as Middleton's article explained, it's also a memory neurotransmitter. And what this means is that when you consume a substance that gives your brain an exaggerated release of endorphins, your brain likes it a lot. And when dopamine is released, the brain stores the information that this substance is good and we should consume as much of this as possible. And there's an evolutionary reason for this. Before we were a static and agrarian society, we lived off the land. It was important for our survival, for our brain to not only store information like, here's the food and here's where the danger is, but to also encourage us to keep coming back for more and more food and to stay away from things that might eat us. So what this means is that our brain not only stores the information of the drink itself being a surefire way to get a huge pleasurable rush of dopamine and other fun neurotransmitters, but also it stores the information on the environment that leads to consuming the drink. It's kind of like Pavlov's dogs and they're drooling when they hear the food coming down the hallway. I remember I used to get a little rush every time I drove by the liquor store even if I wasn't stopping to buy something. Because my brain learned over time that this place, the liquor store, is where we purchase the substance that gives us the endorphin and dopamine release. And to take this a step further, if we go through the cycle enough times, our brain anticipates the huge release of endorphins to come and begins to actually release dynorphins in anticipation of you having a drink. If you've taught your body that you pour a glass of wine every night at 5 p.m., your body will eventually begin to release those dynorphins, even if you haven't drank yet, even if you don't have alcohol in your system, which is where you get urges and cravings. Because your body is so used to correcting the balance of homeostasis, if you get this release of dynorphins and you don't get the endorphic and dopaminergic release that you're used to by drinking the drink you might feel pretty down or pretty uncomfortable or kind of depressed if you don't have the drink to balance it out. And this is where we get the need for alcohol just to be able to feel normal, which might not necessarily be you, but that's kind of end stage where it leads. Now, I want you to stick with me. This can all feel a little bit overwhelming to hear. And I want you to know that these changes in your brain are not permanent and you can rewire your brain just by thinking and behaving differently. And that's exactly the work that I do with my clients who want to change their relationship with alcohol. But I want to take it back to that dopamine release that we get just for a second. That helps our brain remember the context in which we are consuming alcohol and getting the reward in our brain. And I'm going to give you some examples. Sitting on a patio leads to alcohol. 
5 p.m. happy hour with colleagues leads to alcohol. Client dinner leads to alcohol. Picking up a bottle of wine at the corner store on the way home from work leads to alcohol. And what I want to think about today is that our thoughts can also be triggers for our brain that lead to drinking alcohol. Our brains learn over time that certain thoughts will reliably lead us to drinking, even when we had decided ahead of time that we weren't going to drink. And again, some examples of these thoughts are things like, it's okay to have just one. I had a stressful day. I deserve it. I need to relax. I can take tomorrow night off instead. The party will be more fun if I have a cocktail. Sex with my partner is better when I drink. And there are even negative ones that work for this purpose. The client will be offended if I don't drink. Work functions are boring without alcohol. I'll make everyone feel awkward if I don't join them for a drink. And in the moment, all of these thoughts really seem like a fact. We make these statements like we're reporting the news. So today, I want to challenge you to consider that maybe these thoughts that lead us to drink reliably every time are maybe not true, and that maybe they are optional. Maybe there is a different perspective that we can consider. And I know this to be the case because I used to think all of these things when I was drinking, and now I don't think any of them. Can you open your mind to the possibility that you are ultimately in control of what and how you think and how you can choose to think other things instead? And that's not to say that it's like a switch that you just flick on and off. These are well-worn neural pathways. Some of my trigger thoughts were etched in my brain for over a decade. But once you can take a step back and see what's actually going on, you can begin to see the possibility that something else might be available to you. And the way we can create this change is that you make the decision ahead of time about what you want to think. You anticipate that your brain is going to offer you these well-worn thoughts in order to get you to drink. And of course it is, because your brain is just doing what it's designed to do to help you survive. It simply hasn't caught up to this modern context that we've evolved to. And when you know that this is the case, and you can expect it to happen, you can decide how you might like to show up differently to the experience. So two years into this, I still get the occasional pang when I walk by the wine aisle in the grocery store. It's not as often or as strong as it used to be, but it's definitely there sometimes. But the difference now is that I can see it for what it is. My brain is just trying to keep me alive. But I can respond with the conscious part of my brain and my mind that knows what's going on, and I can choose to think something else. Or I can just choose to allow that thought to be there. I can also choose to be curious about what's going on, which I always recommend when you're feeling stuck, is to choose that curiosity. Like, whoa. It's been a while since I've had an urge from driving by the liquor store. I wonder what's going on for me today. I wonder what I'm working through. And that curiosity, and of course, self-compassion to go along with that curiosity, is always a way to forward movement and evolution. So what are your most common trigger thoughts that get you to drink every time? If you were to make a list of your top five, what would they be? 
How do you want to show up next time you have a trigger thought that your brain offers you? Can you sit with the uncomfortable sensation in your body when you don't respond to the thought that creates the urge to drink? As someone who has now allowed thousands of urges at this point, I will tell you with certainty that you absolutely can. How did this episode sit with you? Are you someone who would like to quit drinking or take a break for a while? If this is you and you're ready to make a change, let's talk. I want to tell you all about my 12-week program where I help you do exactly that. I guarantee that by the end of the 12 weeks, you will have a very different relationship with your drinking. You're going to head to michellecapler.com or click the link in the show notes to book your free 60-minute virtual consult today so you can tell me all about you and I'll tell you all about how I can help you with your drinking. That's going to be it for me this week. I'll be back next week with another episode. And until then, you've got this, my friend.